Today on episode 818 of CXO Talk, we're discussing the changing world of enterprise AI with a special emphasis on our friend generative AI. Our guest is one of the most acclaimed data scientists in the world, Anthony Scrifignano. And with that, Anthony, welcome back to CXO Talk. Thank you very much, Michael. Not sure about the one of the most, but I appreciate the comment. Thank you. Anthony, you do have an extraordinary background. So give us a, give us a sense of what you've been working on, what you've done. I worked in many industries. I worked in manufacturing for quite a long time, um, management consulting with one of the big four. I worked for about 21 years as the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. And now I'm working for the Stimson Center, which is a, a storied Washington, D.C. think tank that does amazing things all over the world. So it's been quite a ride. Um, I've done a lot of inventing over those years. Um, language, a lot of focus on multilingual, something called semantic disambiguation, identity resolution, fraud, veracity adjudication, which is judging the truthiness of things, geospatial inference. So a lot of different... Um, what we would now call AI, but a lot of different uh, technology applied to answering really tough questions at the edge of computer science. And what I find amazing is that you've developed like a hundred patents. Other people help, but it's only 98 right now. And you know, it's a few ideas and then you have to defend them in different ways in different parts of the world. But yes, it's, it's quite a lot. Um, that's part of my job. Uh, part of my job is to innovate, and innovating includes inventing, and inventing includes protecting that intellectual property and, and telling the world that you've done it. So that's part of that journey. What is going on with AI right now? What is the kind of status of AI, and especially generative AI in the enterprise? In order to answer that question, I need to unpack the term AI, because there's no intelligence in artificial intelligence. It's a bunch of math. And AI algorithms, things that fall into that domain, generally fall into different categories. So supervised learning is the thing that most of us will be familiar with. Machine learning, sometimes called machine learning. Uh, these are techniques that regress around the past, around some reasonably representative sample of training data, and they learn about the behavior of that data, and then they project into the reasonably unperturbed future in, usually in the short term. And that's where you get things like scores or um, predictions that are like really short term. Unsupervised methods try to coalesce the data where there ne isn't necessarily any a priori knowledge, any, any rows and columns that tell you what the data is. Or maybe you have rows and columns that tell you what it is, but you don't really have enough of it to say that it's representative of the past. So think about how the recommendation engine work when it's never seen you before, which is how most of them work because they've never seen you before. They've seen the way others behave before, but they don't know you. And so it's a little bit of a combination of those two things. The unsupervised is coalesce everything that you can see. The supervised learn from the past and then mash them together. You get these hybrid methods. Generative AI falls into that category of kind of a hybrid where there are, if you really peel it back, there are models and, and there are convolutional algorithms which sort of or less data that sit underneath them. What the term generative AI means is that instead of just looking back at the data, they generate their own content. That's where the term comes from. So the, the, the type of generative AI that many of us will have seen before that term became popular was in chatbots where you're not really talking to a person, but you're supposed to think you're talking to a person. That is generating content. Deep fake, those are type of generating AI, generating an image of something that never actually occurred. The thing that has happened over the last year or so is with, and I, I try not to name specific products, but we all know what we're talking about, right? Um, with particular, very popular and, and publicly available and it has become suddenly there's this explosion of mostly text-based, but now a lot of image-based as well, technique for generating lots of words. So if you want to have a summary 
of what happened with a certain piece of legislation over the last week. I just did this. I don't have time to read all the articles. I'm busy. I, I can go to a, one of these systems and say, give me a summary of, of what has happened in this regard. Uh, there's something called prompt engineering now, which is about a question, get an answer that's closer. So there's AI about the AI. There's even gener generative AI. I'm trying not to say gen AI, but there's generative AI that looks at output that you have to determine whether it's likely that it was generated by generative AI. So there's um, this sort of um, physician heal thyself thing going on in there. What I say often when we talk about AI is that we need some new words. We need some new language to, to describe this. When you hear um, experts or, or people who would like to be experts talking about this field, it, it's a lot of word soup right now. They, they try to say certain terms as much as they can uh, to sound like everybody else that's talking about this. Um, that's a form of you know human generative AI. Like I don't really know exactly what it is, so let me try to use everything I've learned and generate something that sounds like it's responsive. It's, you know, we're, we're not there yet. It's definitely still maturing. Anthony, how much of this growth and adoption is due to the fact that there's something genuinely new versus the incredible marketing hype machine that is OpenAI and ChatGPT? All of a sudden, this um, pretty amazing tool became available to everybody, you know, open to the world and the world started playing with it and it's a lot of fun to play with and it it, it is pretty amazing i you know i don't i want to i don't want to um put you in a certain age group but i'm old enough to remember um in the early days of computers there was a computer program called eliza that mimicked a psycho analysis session you, you know hello i'm eliza tell me about your problems and then it would parse your language and if you said the word mother somewhere in there or parents, it would say, tell me about your mother. Um, if you said certain things like problems, it would just, it would say things like, tell me more. Um, really primitive attempt to show that you could be uh, tricked into believing you were talking to something intelligent when you weren't. Well, now we're at the point where it's a lot harder to tell. And I think that um, certainly with this becoming available to the public, it's available to everyone. That doesn't mean it's available to everyone in a way that is appropriate to use it. And so we really have to be careful. There's a lot of folks running around in the enterprise world right now saying, how do we monetize this? How do we, we need to get out there with products and solutions that are using Gen AI. We need to tell our customers and our investors, yeah, you, you do need to do all that, but you need to think carefully about Besides being able to say you're using Gen AI, what new problems are you solving? What problems are you solving better? What costs are you reducing? What risks are you mitigating? How do you know you're not introducing bias? How do you know you're not introducing some sort of new problem that you didn't think about? There's a lot of questions that need to be asked. You don't just want to run in and, and it's okay to experiment, but you don't really want to run in and, and hit that ball as hard as you can until you understand what the implications are. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the CXO Talk newsletter. We have amazing shows coming up. Check out the homepage of CXOTalk.com. We have a very interesting and important question on LinkedIn from Simone Joe Moore, who asks about the, well, she makes the comment that the science of AI is moving so quickly. How does it line up today with business ethics and business values in the enterprise? The technology is moving faster than the ability to adopt it or understand it. Certainly, regulation is lagging behind, and innovation will always be in front of regulation. But right now, it's we have kind of uh, a lot of catch up going on around the world. Um, the, the part of what's in your question is the essence of science. You know, you, the, the scientist observes the world, asks a meaningful question, uses an appropriate method to address that question, understands the bias, understands what others have done before, answer a similar 
similar questions. That's not going on right now. There's a lot of, let's kick it and see what happens going on right now. So uh, it's dangerous. It's not the first time this has happened. When the PC became available, there was similar behaviors. When the, when the automobile became you know, available, there were similar behaviors. But the pace of it now is historically unprecedented. The amount of data, forget AI for a second. There's something called the data sphere, the amount of data available to mankind. That is increasing at a rate that is arguably unmeasurable. I say arguably because some people publish things that attempt to measure it. But if you read all the footnotes, they're measuring part of it. Everything creates data. Data itself begets data. Data is not like oil because data doesn't get destroyed when we use it. Um, so we're, we're certainly not using all the data that we're creating. More than 80% of it is unstructured. Generative AI is pretty good at dealing with unstructured data. So there's hope there. Um, but we are way far from keeping pace with what's happening. So you'll hear the word democratization a lot, where a big word for saying what happened with when PowerPoint became available, all of a sudden everybody can create a document and make it, you know, look like it came from a printer, except you didn't study fonts and, you know, layout and, and design and not know your letting from your current turning and, and it didn't stop you from using it. And so you had all these death by PowerPoint moments where people just created these horrific, they still happen. People create these horrific presentations that they're very proud of. They used all the features that were available. It's happening a lot with this type of technology where there's a race to see almost how outrageously cool we can be with it. But there's that word you used, responsible. So what happens if I use the data and Gen AI to say, I'll just pick an example. Um, how should I invest in the context of a current global disruption? Good question, but the answer doesn't lie in the data that's behind me because the disruption that's in front of me doesn't look like anything that happened in the past. In the middle of COVID, there's a ship stuck in the Suez Canal. That never happened before, and COVID never happened before. Don't tell me you can look at the data behind you and figure out what to do 100%. When you figure out 80% of it, I don't know, maybe uh, but, but you have to be very, very careful and make sure that that data doesn't contain bias. It's not, it, it always contains bias. And trying to eliminate bias introduces new types of bias. So with most of your customers are from a certain demographic, and you learn what your customer's intent is from that data, you have introduced that demographic bias into your learning. And if you're trying to serve a more diverse set of customers, you're not going to find that method in data that came from the ones that don't look like the ones you're trying to serve. So you really do have to step back and answer these important questions first. Don't just jump right into, you know, push the button, see what happens, push the button, see what happens. It, it's, it's, it can be quite irresponsible depending on the use case. If you're just trying to, you know, get your message out, marketing, maybe it's okay. And, and I'm not trivializing marketing, but broader brush, right? Broad discovery, um, rule boards, you know, maybe we should be a little bit more careful. Simone Joe Moore on LinkedIn comes back with another interesting question or comment. And she says that AI today, generative AI, is a mimic. Yes. It appears to have yes. this intelligence. It appears yes. to have emotion. Absolutely. And therefore results in a limited kind of scope that has the appearance Yes. of greatness and depth absolutely and true. that's dangerous that is very dangerous so there's something called uh, artificial general intelligence you know uh, we're not there yet i'm not sure i want to live in that world um but we're not there yet what we have right now i, I don't want to get I'm, I'm aware that twitter is out there or x i, I don't want to get you know tweeted all over but um there's an element of autocorrect on steroids here. Like it's, you know, we are, we are summarizing the data. We are coalescing the data. We are generating content that looks like that data, but the world in front of us doesn't look like the world behind us. So we have to be careful. What you want is a summary of what happened last week. We need the technology. It's great. If you want to say, what should I say about what happened last week in the context of what I think is going to happen tomorrow, maybe you ought to rethink that because that requires a crystal ball. It's not a crystal ball. It's very good math and very good, incredibly complex, brilliant algorithms that 
coalesce that data, create something that appeared to be generated better than maybe what you might have done, or certainly better than what you could have done in the time you had. It's not, it had, there are a lot of caveats here that need to be considered. So there are a lot of caveats, but nonetheless, the results are absolutely extraordinary. And that's the thing, right? Despite the caveats, despite, despite the fact that it is a uh, advanced autocorrect statistical modeling prediction system, it gives the appearance of super usefulness. And, and it is really useful. And it can be. And I should probably have said autocomplete, not autocorrect. But yes, um, it can. And that's that yeah, but moment, right? And I get into this in, in every conversation. There will be somebody that says, look, this is amazing new technology. We need to sometimes just try things and break things and, and move faster and, and monetize this and, and, and expand it. And all let's make new mistakes. Let's be careful that we understand the potential implications. You don't want to just rush out and use something because everyone else is using it or because it's new. You can, and in certain cases, Michael, you're absolutely right. What you want to do is generate content really fast that looks pretty good and pretty close to what you would have done if you had more time. Yeah, go ahead. Or please read it. Um, yes, I found articles uh, that were published under my name as if I wrote them in different parts of the world in other languages that I don't speak. Um, and <laughs> when I read these articles, I read them like, yeah, I probably would have said most of that. Right? Like it, what they've done is they've combined a lot of things that have said out there into something and didn't bother approach me about it. And, you know, I don't know. Um, There's going to be a lot more of that. Those are the deep fake kind of things. Um, What happens when I slightly modify that? Make Let's say someone wants to make me look like I'm biased or like I'm not so smart or like I'm against a certain philosophy or against a certain part of the world. All I have to do is introduce one or two words. And it's easy to do that. I use, I was speaking to a group with you, um, earlier this week, Michael, and I used the example, I think it's a good one. This is not a political example. Um, Right now, if I use the word Trump, it is probably a proper noun. If I used that word 20 years ago, it was probably a verb. And if you look at all the words that surround the use of that word, they have changed a lot over the last 10 years, right? So it's fine to talk about something like um, asparagus, because it's been around for a long time, if all of a sudden we want to talk about pensions in near the um, uh, Gulf of Suez in the context of supply chain disruption and its impact on manufacturing, you know, how much language is there out there? There's a lot of language with all those nouns in it, but not at the same time in that context. Please be careful. You'll reach your conclusions will look brilliant, but they may not be. They may just be very fakey. On this same panel this week that, that you and I were on, I use this example. We have a project going on right now with uh, some folks at Harvard Business School. As a matter of fact, Anthony, you're part of that that project, so you're very well aware of this, and we are analyzing historical CXO talk transcripts to figure out patterns, changes over time, because we've done a lot of shows, we have amazing guests, and we have a lot of transcripts. So we put a bunch of CXO talk transcripts into a large language model to see what it would come back and tell us. And we did some queries to, to find out what some of these people said and how, how the pieces relate to one another. And it returned back extraordinary results. I mean, quotes that, I mean, just perfect gems that suited what we needed exactly. And then we went back and kind of did an audit trail examination to find the source of those quotes in our transcript. You know what we discovered? It 
made it up that the AI, it was all fake. It invented stuff. It was utterly useless. In between, we didn't just pour it into a large language model. There was a lot of curation that went on in terms of using external corpora in order to contextualize the words that were being used. We had a lot of problem formulation around how we might engineer the, the NLP that we were using in that particular exercise. There was something called a heuristic evaluation where we used you as an expert to evaluate some of the conclusions that were being reached. We challenged the data that was coming back in the context of how it might change if we took different chunks of those transcripts. So it, there's a, a very adult kind of data science going on in that analysis. It wasn't, and I know you didn't characterize it this way, but just so we're crystal clear, it wasn't open tool, pour in transcripts, close tool, push button, get answer. There was a lot of data science that went on in the background there as well. And that's how you have to do that if you want to do something like that. We have some technical questions that are coming up on Twitter. So why don't we jump from LinkedIn to Twitter? And Chris Peterson asks, he says, in terms of ethical AI, can we achieve that with neural net-based approaches, or do we need more old-school symbolic AI technology in order to achieve that? We need both, and we need other things that have yet to enter the arena. So um, I would I would direct you to OECD and other organizations that have um, done a tremendous amount of work around the uh, responsible AI and, and auditability and the understanding of the algorithms that are used. The uh, the bottom line here is that the techniques that exist today are necessary but not sufficient. And I think that's embedded in your question. Um, it, you know, it's a little bit of a trick question. Should we use Rama or the wrench to fix this alien spacecraft? Well, you know, right now we have hammers and wrenches. We have an alien spacecraft, right? We're going to need hammers and wrenches, but we're going to need other things that we don't have yet. And in the meantime, we're going to need people. And we're going to need people that can be the gold standard in heuristic evaluation is they need to be similarly incented and similarly instructed. So you get a bunch of experts that like, sounds like you might be one of them that have the right background, that have the same gain or lose by being right or wrong. So they're not introducing any kind of that kind of bias. Um, and you ask them all the same question and you call us on their answers. Definitely the technologies that you're referencing are part of doing that. Because you need to do this at scale. And we're, we're talking about um, a lot of zeros when you count the number of data points that we're trying to talk about here. People can't look at all that data. The, the concepts of looking at a statistically representative sample are out the window uh, because the way that this data coalesces is massively multimodal. But excuse me, if you're trying to do something like um, buyer intent, sure. You're trying to do something like fraud, absolutely not. The best fraudsters... They think they're being watched, they change their behavior. So if you model it, you model how the best ones are no longer behaving. You need people who are fraud experts to look at that tail um, that you can't look at. So no, there's not enough technology right now, either in the old school methods or in the new school methods. We need to use those. We need to use some other things we haven't invented yet. In the meantime, we need these experts that are similarly incented and similarly instructed to provide a heuristic brain. We have a question from Twitter, and this is from Wei Huang, and she says, Dr. Scrifignano, when can, what can we consider when thinking about sentiment analysis as AI evolves and the risk of increasing malfeasance? First of all, sentiment analysis um, there's a lot of science around this. Um, you may have heard of uh, things like uh, analysis that says, you know, our customers are getting happier, our customers are getting less happy. Generally, when you peel it back, a lot of those algorithms look for certain words that are it's positive, that, that indicate happiness or pleasure. 
Uh, the problem is that we have certain confounding characteristics of language, like neologism, making up new words, or sarcasm. You know, Michael, if I say, I can't see your shoes, so I'll just click on your shoes. If I say, nice shoes, Michael, you know, you don't know whether I'm being sarcastic or not. If you know that I typically love your shoes, then you're more likely to believe that that's a positive comment. If I say so-and-so is an excellent data scientist, if you don't mind failing a lot, you know, that sounds like it's positive because I said excellent, but the, the independent predicate there kind of took it away. That's the sarcasm. People do that a lot when they talk online, especially. So now we introduced malfeasance, which is the second part of the question. And malefactors are funny because, first of all, they have that element of the observer effect that when they think they're being marked, they change their behavior. They, they have certain behaviors that we know they have that they don't necessarily know we know they have. So, for example, one of them is narcissism. They tend to look at themselves a lot to see if they're getting noticed. And so the fact that they're looking at themselves more frequently is a way of getting clued in that maybe they're not like everybody else, right? So there's a lot of those. There's thousands of those. That was a pretty easy one. Um, but um, two types of, of malfeasance, one is active and one is passive that I'll point out right now are misinformation and disinformation. So disinformation is if I want to make you look bad, I defame you. I say things that I know are not true, usually hard to prove. And then I put them out there. And because they're salacious, people tend to repeat them. Did you hear blah, 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 blah. When those people who repeat them are repeating them, that is not, it's not disinformation. They're not trying to malign you. They think it's true. They're just passing along something that's not true. Well, those are two different types of malfeasance. One passive, where but the original malefactor kind of weaponized everyone else and saying something they're likely to repeat. Imagine algorithms that try to tell the difference, and how could you possibly do that? I don't want to get into tradecraft, but you can possibly do that. There are ways to look at how often the first person versus the third person is used, for example, I as opposed to they, by looking at whether or not the language is consistent with the other language that this person uses and see whether it's likely that they're using someone else's language. There are lots of advanced techniques in NLP and in, in natural language processing that can be used to address these concepts of misinformation and disinformation and sentiment disambiguation. Are we there yet? Is it state of the art? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not even close. Plenty of work to do. If you want to get, you know, uh, honorary PhD, if you want to get, uh, you know, uh, become the, 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 the guru of you know, this is a field to get involved in because it's Definitely not done cooking yet. We have a, another thought-provoking question from Simone Joe Moore, who says, is AI such as ChatGPT going to have diminishing returns because as we consume AI content, do we stop feeding it new content and therefore the AI feeds itself? So AI generating content, we've run out of content for it to feed on, and now the AI is responding to existing AI generated content. What about that situation? The concept underlying your question is something called supersaturation. These algorithms don't work well when they supersaturate, when there's nothing net new. And so, yes, if all we did was use these algorithms to generate content. And if most of the content that was generated was produced by these algorithms, these algorithms, because they are largely convolutional, would converge on their own content and they would basically consume themselves and become kind of a parody of themselves. That won't happen for a couple of reasons. One is that people still say things. And when people say things, uh, they often try to be not like the others. You may have picked up from the way I'm talking. I'm trying not to use a lot of technical terms. I'm trying not to use a lot of buzzwords. Um, I do that on purpose to make what I'm saying more approachable. These algorithms won't do well with all the words that I've said because I'm not saying words like everybody else says mostly. And so it's difficult to work with this kind of speech. People will probably learn to speak like that more, be more careful not to fall foul of being faked, right? So if you listen to the way CEOs do investor 
um, meetings. Right? They, they kind of read in a monotone. A lot of times they they say language that's very, very safe and very couched. And it's not that they're being evasive. It's that they're being careful that they can't get tripped up by algorithms that are going to start shorting their stuff because they use a negative word. So they've learned. We will all learn that to some extent. And then the algorithms will learn that we're doing that and they'll learn to do that. And and there's a little bit of, um, you know, this is like the roadrunner and the coyote. You know, we're going to keep uh, going at each other here. But if you you just took your hands off the wheels, exactly what you say would, would, Map would say that it would happen. Supersaturation would eventually occur. It won't, or because human beings are involved. But it, it's definitely something to think about. Very, very interesting question. Let's shift gears a little bit. When we look at generative AI in the enterprise, how do we prioritize the use cases and the? investments where should we be focused at today's level of technology maturity i would say who is this we that you're speaking of because it, it very much I, it's rhetorical i you know but it's, um, the, it's it's the royal yeah. we you know we oh yeah it's that we <laughs> is you know governments trying to monitor potential bad guys and that that we is corporations trying to you know, maximize return to investors, or if that we is uh, researchers trying to do something innovative, that's a different answer. So, um, you know, the, the popular answer, the chat GPT answer, sorry, the generative AI answer um, would be, you know, maximize return on investment. So look at the new cases that have the highest likelihood of using um, some kind of multiple on the investment, because the investment is not insignificant here. You, you think that these things are open source and great. That means they're free, right? Well, no, because when you start needing to use your own data and start needing to use other data, some of which you might have to pay for, millions and millions of dollars for, um, if, you, if you start looking at the, the infrastructure that is required to produce products that use this, the, the technical stack, the tech stack that is required for that is definitely not for the, for the light of heart. Uh, the ability to, to test these things and to supervise them and monitor them Regulatory compliance, all of these things are super expensive. So looking at the investment ROI is one thing. Uh, as an innovator, one of the things I look at are frames of innovation. So I have two categories I look at. I look at doing new things, things you've never done before, and doing old things in new ways. So if you're doing a new thing, then you have to be able to prove that that new thing brings value to the organization. If you're doing an old thing in a new way, you're trying to cut costs, you're trying to increase Operating efficiency, it's more, more better, more better, faster. Those three things are how I measure it. Um, there's another rubric that I use a lot, which it, it tends to resonate. I love it. Um, if you're doing something analytical, are you now enabling the answer to a question that the customer couldn't answer before? Are you changing a decision they might have made? Or are you exposing a risk or an opportunity that's relevant to them? Those are three very valuable frames. If you can measure that, then you can use that to try to prioritize the use cases. This one over here only does three of those things and we've stored them relative to each other like this. And you can do this sort of, you know, min, it's called a min-max problem. Make this thing smaller, make that thing bigger. Um, this is how they make coffee blends. This is how they make wine blends. This is how you make innovation blends to using exactly the same techniques. It's a lot like winemaking. Folks, keep those questions coming. Like, as I said before, when else will you have the chance to ask Anthony Scrifignano pretty much anything under the sun? So ask, take advantage yeah, of Michael, this. Michael, the bar's getting pretty high here. So, you know, these questions know. are really good. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. As we're talking and the questions are coming in, I'm like really trying to raise the bar up. I see what you did there. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So uh, keep the questions coming. We have, here's a great question from Arsalan Khan on Twitter. Going back to the malfeasance issue that was raised earlier, he says, okay, Anthony, when we make all of these regulations and laws that you've been alluding to, 
How do we make sure that companies will not circumvent them? And who enforces the guardrails? A really, really important question. There was a great McKinsey study that came out recently, and I wish I could quote the partner. I apologize, I can't remember his name, but he said, um, we've, we've just opened Jurassic Park, but we haven't installed the electric fences yet. A brilliant quote. Um, that's what's going on right now. So let's assume we make the right laws. And by the way, I don't assume we will, and I'll come back to why I don't think so in a second. But let me accept the premise of your question that we make the right laws. How do we know that companies are following them? And how do we know that um, they're, they're making the right decisions? That's the responsible AI question. And there is no one answer to that. There, the laws tend to have very large penalties, 4% of your global revenue, that kind of thing. Um, you can be um, driven out of markets. You can certainly have uh, criminal um, charges in certain cases with some of these laws. Um, your, your shareholders and your customers will vote with their, with their um, willingness to invest in your company or their willingness to buy your products and services. If you get caught uh, afoul of those things, even within the organization, because this technology is so democratized, pretty much anybody can have access to it now on your phone, right? How do you know that? How do you manage? How do you, as a, as a, a um, compliance person within an organization, everybody has to be part of that compliance organization, every single person. How do you instill that kind of a culture? And someone whose goals are make more money, increase sales, get more mentions on social media, uh, net promoter score. You know, if I'm if I'm judged by KPIs that are are absent the thought of how I might be doing it responsibly, then there is certainly a, a temptation to use all of this new technology and irresponsibly. And so, uh, leaders in organizations have to seriously is there someone on the board? is putting thoughts like your question into the dialogue of the board. If it's someone in the legal department whose job it is to wake up every morning and understand that regulatory landscape and how it has changed. Um, I, there's scores of countries right now that have legislation in this area, either under, under, um, under adjudication or, or issued. There's an executive order in the United States. If you read it, it's pretty intense and it's pretty long. How are we going to respond to that? Don't know yet. I don't think the world knows yet. Um, there's certainly guidance from organizations like NIST in the United States from the equivalent of that organization in other parts of the world. There's things you ought to be doing. Well, you know, I ought to be doing a lot of things, you know, fruits and vegetables. Um, trying to get all this right within an organization is is definitely something that requires focus and attention and measurement and and consequence if you fail. And you shouldn't just be running around trying to see how many times you can say AI when you open your mouth. You should be thinking like you're thinking. Um, I don't see a lot of that yet. And I think we need to see more of it or there's going to be a, a, a reckoning here in, in many ways. You mentioned culture and this disconnect between dry, trying to drive responsible ethical use of AI technologies in the face of corporate mandates to do whatever is necessary in order to be profitable and achieve a high ROI. And we all know those goals can and frequently are in conflict. So my question, therefore, is, is there something that is unique, different, or distinct about Gen AI efforts from this age-old question of honesty in the face of desire and temptation, which is fundamentally what it is. Yes, there is. You can fail much more epically, much more quickly, much more globally, and possibly without even realizing it now with this technology. Other than that, it's pretty much the same. Elaborate on that. You say that you can sarcasm, fail. Just so we're not clear. So oh, we're clear. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Sarcastic. I wasn't yeah. sure about that. Uh, okay. No, it's, it's, it's totally different because now you have technology that operates as your agent. And this concept of agency is very dangerous. If you hire somebody to deliver explosives for you and, and they trip and blow something up, you have some involvement in that because they were acting as your agent. Well, now if you have an AI agent 
that's screening resume for you that has some kind of bias you didn't think about. We have an AI agent that's generating content and your customers are using that to make decisions. There's an agency there that we don't have words to describe this digital agency. We call it responsible AI because we don't have another time for it yet. But understanding what your little digital children might be doing when you're not paying attention it's something we don't really have uh, and probably never will have the full ability on it anymore. It's, it, it, the cat's out of the bag here. No pun intended, the chat's out of the bag, right? So th th this has happened. And, and now we have to figure out as a human race, how do we want to respond to it? I was looking at a customer service blog um, last night. There was an issue and I, you know, you can't call a person anymore. And I, you know, you wind up in the chat thing and, that just directs you to the frequently asked questions. And you always feel like, well, I'm asking a question that I've never asked. How is it frequent? You know, that kind of frustration. And it turns out at first that it looked like this organization had responded very thoughtfully and very quickly to a customer about an issue that was similar, not the same. Uh, and then reading on, they responded in exactly the same words to a different customer that had a slightly different issue. And it became pretty clear that they were responding very quickly because they're that bot was responding very quickly and you know it did the exact opposite to me it made me feel like they don't even care to read this you don't know what goes on behind the scenes maybe they do care we're not going to get there and we're going to get further behind this is going to get worse before it gets better because of the degree of acceleration this is accelerating much faster than our ability to chase it it's okay that happens with a lot of technologies i'm not saying the world is going to end because of this but we have to be careful which decisions we give up, what agency we bequeath to technology, and what are the implications of that. If it's responding to your customers, then don't be surprised when your customers feel like you're disconnected, because you are disconnected. If you're using it to make a, a, a fast decision because you don't have time to make any decision, Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe not if it's the auto flight system on an airplane, right? So, you know, we have to think of, excuse me, about consequence. We have to think about downstream, how will we change this? And we also have to think about when the next disruption happens, how will we be better or worse prepared for it? Because we have become muscles that allow us to do some of these things that now we're letting technology do for us. We get weak. And we don't have the ability to respond to them. I could give you examples, but they involve specific companies. I'd rather not do that, where companies have lost billions of dollars in market cap because of their inability to respond to something and chatbots trying to do it for them. That's dangerous. I'd like to come back to a very important comment, again, from Simone Joe Moore on LinkedIn, who makes the point when we talk about AI ethics and responsible AI, and she says, this is a quote, there must always be the human right to question an AI decision. Now, in theory, that sure sounds good, but in practice, without having a very expensive infrastructure in place to receive comments back from a, a, if we're talking at scale, an enormous user base, potentially, while in theory sounds nice, in practice absolutely does not exist today. And uh, I don't see how in practice it could exist. In certain industries, you can require that. So for credit decisions, for job applications, role decisions, or um, decisions about whether or not you got into a university, you can certainly require, and generally there is requirement, that the, the subject of that decision has a right to question the, the data that was used, not so much the methods, although we're getting there, um, to make that decision that affected them personally. Um, I have a, a, a car that has a lot of automation in it. You can call a lot of that edge AI if you want. It makes decisions for me all the time. It makes decisions about whether to alert me about certain things. It makes decisions about how the uh, anti-lock brakes work or whether they apply. It makes decisions about whether or not to um, change the route that I'm using on the GPS. I don't have the right or the ability to question all of those. I wouldn't understand the answer to some of those. So 
um, you know, we're going to be subject to more and more automation, making decisions on our behalf to serve us. When you go back to the original definitions of AI, they were very anthropomorphic. They used very human terms, make decisions on behalf of computer, of humans, um, project human intent, um, behave response. They didn't use the word responsibly. I think it was reasonably, it all sounds good. Uh, but when that algorithm is sitting inside a chip that's doing billions of computations at the edge in your, in your brake system in your car, I, you know, at some point will, will an auto driving car, I, I know someone who had an experience, so I don't know that this happened. I know that they told me it happened and I believe them. So there you go. They're in one of these auto driving cars, you know, we you summon the car and the car comes and there's no driver. Still terrified me. I'll get there. Um, while they're in this car, an accident, minor accident occurred in front of them. And the car stopped. Uh, the accident occurred at a traffic light. The light turned green and the car drove over all the pieces of wreckage that were in the road and continued on the road. You would never do that as a person. You would just never do that. What if part of that wreckage was organic, right? I, 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 it's a crime scene at the very least, or it could be. Um, humans would just never do that, but the algorithm said it was okay to do that. A while ago, there were kids that uh, used to make fake stop signs and taunt the self-driving cars, you know, to see if they can make them stop. They would jump out and hold the stop sign. It's really funny until somebody goes to the hospital, right? You know, we're beyond that now that the car has the ability to say, did I see a stop sign there yesterday? You know, the car in front of me stop questions like that. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is technology and counter technology, and it's going to continue to happen. I don't think that it should and must are two very different words. Should we be able to question any decision made by AI on our behalf? Yeah, we should. Will we be able to? I don't think it's realistic that we'll ever get there um, in the world I live in because of the degree of proliferation of this sort of thing. So we have to do it use case by use case, industry by industry, pick the most egregious places where we need to require that, have regulation that requires it, and understand but there are countries that will not, or places in the world that will not have those regulations. And so, you know, by unregulating something in one place, failing to regulate it, and regulating it in another place, you create this disparity of innovation. There's lots of complexity that has to be considered. You're right. Epistemologically, you're right. Realistically, I don't know if that's going to happen. Let's talk about metrics and measures. How do we determine or how do organizations determine the right way of evaluating these Gen AI efforts? And to some degree, the issues you were just raising come into play there as well, because the evaluation criteria can address all of these points. You said how do organizations do it? And I think it's probably different than how should they do it. Um, you know, it depends on the size of the organization. Uh, larger organizations have these very sophisticated models where you have to reach a certain investment hurdle rate. So you you articulate what you intend to do and the cost, and someone calculates the, the impact on the on on the EBITDA or whatever um, metric that they want to calculate. Um, they, there are decisions that are involved with generally accepted accounting practices, whether this is whether you can capitalize the investment, whether it's an expense, those kinds of things. And, and, and so there are sort of tried and true ways of measuring the cost of an investment in some new technology. But this is innovation, and this is something very different, and it's in a different category. And if you only evaluate it that way with new technologies, it'll either look very cheap because you haven't considered the total cost of ownership, like all those people that need to make it keep working in the cloud environment and trying to get your data back out later and all that, you, you know, it just doesn't get into the use case because you didn't understand it. Or everything looks too expensive because the first nuclear reactor was, you know, really hard to build. Um, the second one was a little bit easier, you know, so it gets easier to do the things as time goes on. Total cost of ownership is is a, a KPI under ownership uh, fully realized value of the investment over a certain investment lifespan is sort of the traditional way. If you pick a use case, there are KPIs that come into play. One of my favorite ones is in in sales and marketing, and you have um, 
customer management action. So like which which of my customers do I focus on and how do I measure the value of placing that focus on them? If you only serve your best customers all the time, maybe they're not going to grow anymore and they're going to do business with you anyway because they either love you or fear doing business without you. And no matter how hard you serve them, you don't want to make any more money. On the other hand, if you don't serve them, maybe they'll go away. You know, So there's ways of measuring that. Um, lead, ma- lead management actions is the cousin of that, which is I have too many leads and too few salespeople. So which leads do I focus on? Do you go after customers that are potential customers that look like your current best customers, which is a growth strategy? Do you look at customers that look completely different than your existing customers? That's an expansion strategy. Um, do you look at customers that are successful now or customers that are likely to be successful later? The time dimension to it. So there's definitely lots of KPIs, all oh, most of them there. Um, you can go into um, the responsible uh, frame. You can look at ESG. You can look at um, your, 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 the types of uh, markets that you can serve and, and how that will expand or change the footprint of the impact you have on society or on the planet. You can look at things like um, engagement, employee engagement. You know, smart people, data scientists, they want to work on cool stuff. You know, if you don't let them work on this, are they going to run away and go do something, follow some other shiny object? And then now you have, you don't have the people you need to support the things you were doing yesterday. So there's some element of um, keeping your own internal people happy because they think they're working on cool stuff and they are, and, and, and they're happy and engaged. Do you want to um, um, use this to um, scare your competitors? But all of those are, are KPIs that you can use. And what I always advise is, creating a, a method of measuring a rubric that lets you measure multiple KPIs and they should be both qualitative and quantitative and they should be scaled according to some criteria that everyone understands. And then if those criteria change, you go back and you reevaluate everything. If you only use one, like you only use ROI, you're going to miss that innovation. Element. If you only use innovation, you're going to forget how much it costs. You can't, there isn't one ring to rule them all here. And the best way of doing this to have trying not to say scorecard because scorecards are static they don't change but if you have a rubric a way of measuring that allows you to scale the relative importance of each of the components both qualitatively and quantitatively and you continually revisit that over time you can definitely measure these sorts of things and you can do an amazing job we have another really interesting question from uh, elizabeth shaw from twitter and she says how do you shape management's expectations and understandings of the pragmatic use of AI, especially with respect to the safe and responsible use of AI relative to profit and margin? If the question had said, do you, I think I would have probably been better able to answer it because they you know, I, there's an element of rhetoric in that. I, some uh, senior leadership is very focused on this. They, they are thinking very broadly about, and they have someone on the board or someone in the C-suite that is, is that voice of, you know, responsible use of technology, of AI, of what, you know, whatever the technology is. Some organizations are, you know, we need to grow faster. We need to lead harder. You know, we need to we need to make let's break things. Let's 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 make make mistakes faster. Let's you know faster, faster, faster. Grow, 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 grow. Um, with this kind of technology, that can accelerate the speed with which you hit the wall, right? So, um, you know, how do you? There's a very fine line between helpful and and annoying. And I think you have to stay as close to that line as possible. There's a very fine line between uh, people being able to hear you and people thinking they know what you're going to say before you say it. So I try to be very Socratic about this in those conversations. I try to say, you know, what do we think will happen if we if we don't have someone focused on the, the changing regulation here? As if I know what why I don't say it that way or. Um, what problem are we trying to solve? When everybody's rushing, like, you know, let's use Gen A, let's use let's great, let's use Gen A. What are we going to do with it? What's the problem? What's the analytic? What's the the, the new thing that we're going to do? It's a question of, um, you know, the opportunity cost of doing this versus doing something else, which we often forget, right? If we're going to do this and we're not going to change the amount of resources, then we're going to not do something else. 
So I'll answer the question, you know, what, what is it that we're not going to do in order to be able to, because we can't just tell those same 10 people, 100 people, whatever it is, to, to, to double down and, and work harder and learn this new stuff and, do, and keep doing all that other stuff you were doing yesterday faster and better at some point that breaks. So, you know, there's, a, there's an element of, of being Socratic here. There's an element of being resolutive here. And there's an element of slowing down while you speed up, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. The technology is different. The underlying human dynamics for maximizing profit, especially in public companies where profit needs to be reported on a quarterly basis, but even in private companies, venture-funded companies, where if you don't show a certain level of growth, you as CEO are likely to be out the door or your company is going to be going out of business. So yeah, the technology has changed, but is there anything different, unique, special about that that changes the equation or dynamics? Because the fundamental human nature is the same. This is an externality that we cannot control. It is happening. It, we, we're not going to put the genie back in the bottle here. So while you were asking your question, I, I was smiling. I don't know if your viewers can see both of us at the same time, but I was grinning ear to ear while you were asking that question. And of course, greed is always going to be there. And there's always going to be that person, usually a bully, that says, yeah, 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 whatever, nerd boy, you know, go away. We're going we're gonna to do this because we're going to make more money. And we're going to make money fast before everybody else. Those are the people that produced radium water in the 1950s and, and, and you know, told people to drink it because it, it was going to increase their vitality and, and lots and lots of other examples where there's this new thing that we didn't know anything about. And let's hurry up and monetize it. And some of them are right. You know, sometimes they're right. Very often they wind up having been epically wrong. And so you've got a little bit kind of swing both ways. Yeah. You need to move fast. You need to go after those greenfield opportunities before the, the competitor. You need to claim the market. You need to make the market. Yes, you need to do all that. But at the same time, if you just say, damn the torpedoes, I don't care what happens, blow everything up, do whatever you can to get there, then you have to be prepared to deal with the consequence. In this case, that consequence is coming from technology that you probably don't understand and certainly can't control. And we have, as, as a human race, not experienced that yet. And this is where some of the doomsayers, and I shouldn't call them that, but some of the people that have a more dystopian view of where this is all going are saying because of our inherent tendencies to be greedy and to try to adopt these things as fast as possible, we're going to them in charge of who controls the, the you know, the, I don't want to start getting into it, but you know, this thing or that thing that can kill you, and it's going to be Skynet. And, and you know, there is an element of that. If we, if we allow too many of our decisions to be, um, if we rush ahead to let too many of these decisions be automated, damn the consequences, then damn the consequences and shame on us. Would you summarize for us and, and also offer your, offer your opinion on the use of AI in uh, warfare, military operations, Department of Defense? Some very smart people that are, um, have forgotten more about this than I'm ever going to know. I'm focused on that and how dare I, however, since you asked, um, all around the world. There are uh, nation states that are certainly well aware of this technology and are certainly rushing to make use of it in order to um, protect against the certainty that the other guy is also making use of it. They are, in, in many cases, not constrained by the same regulatory environment. They don't have the shareholder responsibilities that we talk about. There is definitely an element of responsible AI there. There is absolutely some of Simone's questions about audibility and knowing why you made the decision. That, that is certainly there. Um, but they, in large, large part, all deal with enormously complex infrastructures that already have massive amounts of AI embedded. So there are disciplines for ingesting new technology. There are processes that governments have set up for 
proposing new ideas to the government. There's a tremendous amount of oversight that goes on and an increasing amount of oversight that goes on. And some of the most noble and smartest people I've ever had the honor of meeting are involved in those efforts. So, you know, in, in the part of the world where I live and where you live, I, I think those are amazing people. They have a lot of work to do and, and they, the problem is bigger for them and it's moving faster for them than it is for you and me. Um, but um, no, they haven't solved it yet either. And, and they would say the same thing. Nobody's solved this yet. Um, because it is not a static thing. It is a thing that keeps changing. So um, we need to also pay attention to what other parts of the world are doing and understand that they don't necessarily value the same things that we value. I'll just pick on privacy because it's an easy one. You know, if one country values privacy and another country values national defense above the other, what do you think is going to happen when they start to implement technology that affects people? So, you know, that that's a very real question you're asking. It's not... It, People will write books on that. And those books will only have proper context decades from now. And between now and then, quantum computing will come along and disrupt everything. And there'll be some other technology that we're not thinking about that will come along and disrupt that. This is not a new thing. It has been happening all along, but the pace and the prescience of it is, you know, I, I was listening to an interview the other day and someone said, are we being reckless or feckless? You know, <laughs> great question. Um, you can... You can be on either side of that. And I think we have to be very, very careful to be asking those questions and having the right introspection to answer those questions. So the bottom line is these are very important questions. There's very smart people working on these issues. And the use of technology for military purposes is obviously not a new issue by any stretch of the imagination. All fair. But the pace of disruption is, is unprecedented. They cannot, they cannot use the same skills and the same techniques they've used in the past and just do, turn the crank faster and be just fine. They absolutely have to disrupt their thinking, just like the rest of the planet Earth, because of the pace of disruption. To really finish, we have a very interesting question, again from LinkedIn, again from Simone Joe Moore, who says, are you listening very carefully now, Anthony? You said Simone, I started listening very carefully. Yes. Okay. So this is going to need doubly attentive listening carefully. If you could be any robot in history, which one would you be? Robbie the robot. He was the rock star of robots. He was in, in, in Lost in Space. He was in um, all kinds of movies. He's in a museum now. The replicas of it. I have Robbie the robot cufflinks. Um, Robbie the Robot, nobody ever really knew exactly what he could do because he had this this cybernetic brain that they never really understood. Absolutely, Robbie the Robot. And I will have to say that in probably interviewing a thousand, maybe more of the top executives in the world on CXO Talk, we never got that question before. There you go. You just never know. It was clearly not a generative question. Um, Michael, if I could, if I could add, like, um, very often you ask me to sort of close with some sort of advice. Um, if I were listening to this, I would feel like yeah, that's this is all really nice, but what, all you did was make me feel overwhelmed. Like, what am I supposed to do? I I would say three things. I would say number one, be humble. You can't do this by yourself. You're not as smart as you think you are. Nobody is. This is bigger than all of us. Band the circle bring in other people that don't think like you and make sure that you keep doing that, challenging what your team is learning, not just the people you're hiring, but the people that already work there, making sure they're getting smarter and not just running around how, talking about how smart they are. Um, so hum humility is huge. Make new mistakes. Make sure that you're not just hurrying up to break things and just doing the same mistakes over and over again. So it's, it's very important to learn from failure to learn new things from failure, not just how to fail in the same way faster. And the last thing I would say is because the world is changing around you while you are experiencing this change, change is very difficult to notice when we're part of it. So we have to be very careful while we're building the next killer thing that we're doing and watch how the world is changing or we, we risk, number one, being irrelevant, number two, becoming more irrelevant more quickly and number three, huge opportunity gets missed because we're so busy trying to finish that thing that doesn't make any sense anymore. You've got to keep your head up. 
Anthony, thank you so much for helping us make sense of this very rapidly changing time of generative AI, both in society and in, in the enterprise. Anthony Scrifignano, thank you so much. I really appreciate your being here. Thank you very much, Michael. It's, it's a great pleasure and I truly appreciate it. And thanks so much to the great audience. You guys are extraordinary. You ask the most amazing, excellent, insightful questions. Before you go, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the CXO Talk newsletter. We have amazing shows coming up. Check out the homepage of CXOTalk.com to see our upcoming shows. Thanks so much, everybody. This is our last show before the New Year holiday, and I hope everybody has a great holiday and a great end of year and a great day today. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. <laughs>